Seems super loud to me, but maybe that's a... Uh... Nope, we're good, okay. Uh, hey, uh, just allow me to again echo what's already been said in saying welcome. We're so glad that you're here to just gather together as, as one body to worship the Lord, to sing songs unto the Lord. Uh, for anybody that doesn't know me, my name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. And so that affords me the opportunity to preach, which I love to do. And we have been, if you, if you haven't been here with us, we've been in a series in John uh, for a number of weeks now. And uh, the, the, the theme of uh, this series in John is, is to know and to believe. Uh, very simply, to know who Christ is and to believe in who he is. And for that to really define and identify everything that is to be who we are. Um, in the way that we live our lives, the way that we live by the word, the way that we, we live and serve as, as spouses and as employees or employers and so forth and so on. And so I really want you to understand that as, as we, we pick up a second part of a, of a two-part um, uh, two sermon, I guess, uh, on, uh, in, in John chapter 4. So um, I'd invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles if, if you have them or your, your phone or your device or whatever you have. And turn to, to John chapter 4, and we're going to pick up in just a few minutes in verse 27, and uh, we are going to run all the way through 42. Um, initially, I was going to go to 45. We're going to stop at 42. I think that uh, uh, 43, 44, and 45 go with the next section of Scripture, even though the break is probably different in your Bible. Um, but last week, if you were here, uh, I shared with you the, the story, the interaction of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well, and, and um, just uh, really how that interaction that shouldn't have happened and um, that conversation that should have never taken place because Jesus being uh, an Israelite, being a Jew, and the Samaritan woman being both a Samaritan and a woman, um, they never should have spoken in public, but, but Christ does something so uh, very Christ-like, uh, where he just enters into speaking with this woman in a way that, that, that we really never probably would have envisioned. Um, and it just cuts right to the heart uh, of this woman. And we're going to see that today when we pick up where uh, we, we stopped last week. So if, uh, if you will, allow me to read John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. And this is the reading of, of God's word. It says, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor, but others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said, they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Pray with me, please. Great God in heaven, Lord, we come before you now just bowing humbly, asking for your spirit to come and to stir our hearts, to teach us, to mold us 
after the likeness of Christ, to convict us of sin, to see the great and and glorious mission of our Savior in this text, and then to, to look and prayerfully consider how this ought to apply to our lives today. Lord, may we not be complacent or still in our faith, but may we seek to be about the mission that you have for us, for your church, for us as individuals, Lord. And oh God, I just pray that above all that you would be glorified and honored in everything that is said and done here today, Lord, in our prayers, in our singing, in the reading of your word. God, we declare it as true. We believe it. And so we hold fast to it and also in the preaching of your word. Father, hide me behind your cross so that I may just point to Jesus and make much of him today. Just allow me to decrease so that you might increase in all that is said and done here today, Father. We love you. We thank you. This is all for you, and we we ask all of this in your name and for your glory. Amen. So Jesus and the Samaritan woman have this encounter at the well. If you remember the Samaritan woman, she... She confesses in part to, in, in response to something that Jesus said in, in letting him know that, that she had been married five times previously and, and the man that she lived with now, she's not married to. And so she, she lived in great shame and great guilt and she uh, shared with you how she would come out to the well in the middle of the day at, at when, when it was the hottest at the noon hour when no one else would come and uh, she'd come alone when the other women would come in groups. And, and so Jesus enters into this, this dialogue with her um, that is uh, just remarkable because the conversation should have never happened. And then as, as I read to you, if you caught it, we're going we're gonna to get back to there because it's at the end of the, the passage that we're covering today. But the Samaritans of all people, because Jesus said to the Samaritan woman that they don't know what it is that they believe in. What they, can, what they profess to believe in, they don't know of, but the Jews, they do. And salvation stems from the Jews. That's what Christ said to the Samaritan woman in the passage that we read last week. But now we're going to see the Samaritans, right? And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not speaking harshly. This is just the, the, the way they were seen. These, these half-breed pagans are going to be the first people to profess that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, Because Christ did something rare. If you remember last week, I shared with you that Jesus professed to her that he is the Christ. He didn't do that very often. He seldom ever did it in in a a, a strictly Jewish setting. But in this Samaritan setting, in Samaria, he has this conversation with the Samaritan woman about how it is to worship. And he goes into what it means to worship in spirit and truth because our God is a God of spirit. And it leads to this this profession of Jesus being the savior of the world. And that brings us back up to where we are now in, in the text. The, the woman, um, or rather the, the, the disciples are returning from town. They had gone into town to buy the food. That's what's happening while Jesus and this woman are, are conversing. And the disciples come back from town, come back from buying their food, and they see Jesus and the Samaritan woman talking, and they're shocked. They're astonished. This, this shouldn't be happening I can't believe that he's engaging in conversation with this woman, this Samaritan woman. They are, they're surprised, and I think that their surprise had a great deal to do with the, the bad blood that I, talked with, uh, that I shared with you last week. That the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. And they had hundreds of years of hating each other. And so, undoubtedly, the, the disciples' surprise was, was somewhat due to this bad blood that existed between the Jews and Samaritans. But they also would have imagined Jesus as a Jew, as a man, as a rabbi, he wouldn't have been speaking openly in public with a woman. Because this was, again, this, this, was, this was the norm. This was the thing that rabbis did. They didn't speak with women out in public. And this was, this was so widely held to that, that, that it was often said amongst the, the, the very strict Jew and, and for the rabbi, that to speak with a woman, especially in public, um, was incredibly dishonorable and could, could lead that person to hell. Now, 
We know that's not true. But for context, it helps to understand why the disciples are so astonished when they walk up and they see Jesus speaking to this woman at the well. So I'm telling you, their, their, their surprise is understandable. It's valid. It's not right, but it's, it's valid. But yet, they don't say anything. They don't ask Jesus why he's speaking with her. I would imagine that they've already seen and heard so many remarkable things from Christ. Uh, they would probably assume that he's talking to her about some spiritual truth. And so they don't, they don't interrupt, they don't interject, but still they're amazed. Because to them, a conversation with a Samaritan woman was a, a serious breach of conduct. Jesus breaking social norms once again. And they wouldn't even have likely dared question the woman, because if they had, then they would have been guilty of the very thing that they were surprised that Jesus was doing. So that's why the text tells us that they remained silent. They didn't say anything. But then what we see in the Samaritan woman is remarkable. She comes to the well to, to get water. She has this encounter with the Savior. In her enthusiasm of him telling her that he is the Christ, she leaves her water jar and she rushes back into town. She rushes back into town so that she can tell everyone that she, of, of this man that she spoke to at the well. She's going to profess to them, come and, and see this man who told me everything I ever did. Right, which is hyperbole. We know she's, she's using a figure of speech. Jesus didn't, we saw the interaction between the two. He didn't tell her everything that she ever did, but he certainly told her enough for her to feel like he did. He, he asks her, woman, go, go get your husband. She replies, I have no husband. Jesus replies, you're, you're right to say you have no husband. You've in fact had five and the man that you live with now isn't your husband. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. If you remember, I, I shared with you that the, the Samaritans believed that, that Moses was the last true prophet and there wouldn't be another prophet until the Christ came. So uh, again, I'm, I'm telling you that this is reading between the lines just a little bit. I don't know this for fact. But maybe she's, she's starting to fish around a little bit with Jesus to ask him, are, are you this prophet? Are you, are you this Christ? And, and Jesus makes the profession in saying that, that I am indeed the Christ. And she rushes back into town. Townspeople that she, she would have been shunned by. That she would have been avoided by most people because of the guilt and the shame that she undoubtedly carried with her because of her past, because of her choices. They would have avoided her because she lived a, um, just a life of disrepute that, that, um, that, that would, have been, would have been seen as, as incredibly dishonorable. But isn't, isn't this often, in, in, in your case, I ask you to think about this. I hope, I hope this is the case, but isn't it often the case that when, when we or someone that we know has a truly genuine moment of faith that just changes, changes the, the entire trajectory of their whole entire life, right? When that heart of stone is removed and it's replaced with the heart of flesh, you see things with new eyes. You, you, you didn't see the truth and the reality of your sin and your shame and your guilt before God, but now you do. And now you know that that guilt that you had, you could never pay, but Christ did. And, and oftentimes we talk about it, especially like I, I have, it's been a long ago, but a past in youth ministry and like we'd go do summer camps and when your kids come back and they're on that spiritual high, right? You, you, you know, you've seen it. Um, and I'm not going to get into the, the validity of that or, or, their, or, or, or lack thereof, but, but that, that result of genuine faith is what we see in, in those students and, and in ourselves and in the woman that spoke with Jesus. We want to, to share it. We want to bring others along with us, right? Because we found living water. We found a, a hidden treasure in a field in Christ, and we want others to know because now we know all of a sudden that those individuals, those loved ones, those friends who are without Christ, they're in sin and they're going to hell. 
And we don't want that. In his commentary on the the Gospel of John, John Calvin uh, put it this way. Referring to the Samaritan woman, he said, It is not possible that the knowledge of God shall lie buried and inactive in our hearts without being manifested before men. For that saying must be true. I believed, and therefore I will speak. This Samaritan woman believed, and she didn't hesitate. She didn't even take her water with her. She left it and went back into town. She believed, and now she's, she's speaking. Right? She, she, she now knew who Jesus was, and she believed. So whether it's because of her enthusiasm or, or just the interest in the Messiah, all of the townspeople that heard this, this announcement that she made, they follow her back to the well. Because they want to see this man who told her all the things that she ever did. But Jesus tells them that he has food to eat that they don't know about. And just like, if you remember, just like Nicodemus, Jesus says, be born again. He doesn't doesn't understand. Just like the woman at the well, Jesus says, living water. She thinks it's literal water. Just like the disciples, the same way. Jesus says, I have food that you don't know about. And they're left scratching their heads and asking questions for one another. Did you give him something to eat? Who gave him something to eat? Where did he get food? And Jesus tells them where he, where he gets this food. He tells them that his food is, is to do the will of the Father. And to accomplish his work. Jesus was performing his father's work and his will with the Samaritan woman at the well. And undoubtedly, because he's the Savior, because he's God in the flesh, he knows what's about to happen next. He knows the woman goes into town. He knows that she's going to share with the townspeople and they're going to come back. So he informs them his food is to do the will of the father and to accomplish his work. This would have been very similar to Christ in the wilderness. Immediately after he was baptized, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he doesn't eat or drink. And he's tempted by the devil. Turn this rock into bread. And what does he say? Man doesn't live on bread alone, but by the very word of God. So church, understand something. There there is a thing. There is a truth in spiritual food that we are to feed upon. And I don't know if you have ever experienced that. I know that when, when I pastored a, a church that we planted downtown over a decade ago, um, I would, we, 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 I won't go into too much detail here, but we had an art gallery on the bottom floor. And uh, the first Friday of every month was First Friday Art Walk, and we would have thousands, literally thousands of people come through our door in one night, and I tried to, to interact with as many of them as I could, and people would stop, and they'd have questions about the gallery, and I didn't know anything about art, so I would direct them to talk to somebody else about that, but then they, they would ask other questions that inevitably would lead us to a conversation about, oh yeah, we, we, we're a church. We've got a church upstairs. We've got space up there where we gather every Sunday. We eat meals together. We worship. And that would lead to all kinds of conversations. Because church, if you haven't spent much time down, downtown, um, it's a grab bag of ideologies. And, uh, and, and Christianity is a minority of, of those ideologies downtown. And so I would have all sorts of questions. And it would go on like this for hours Right, first Friday of every month, it was a whole day for me, setting up, getting ready, and then things would start at five, and I would sometimes get home at one, two o'clock in the morning. But during that time, after a while, I started to notice, and this isn't me tooting my own horn, because this is, this is just my testimony to the, the truthfulness of feeding on spiritual food. Those conversations that I would get into with people, they were life-giving. 
And it took me a while to see it, and it took me even longer to figure out how to put words to it. But they were life-giving, that I would enter into conversations with people, and I would talk to them about my Savior, and I would never get tired, and I would never get hungry. And I'm not talking about it like it was this some miraculous thing. I just knew that I was, I was receiving sustenance from that. There was so much delight, so much enjoyment in having those conversations with people that I was just able to go for hours and not even think about these things. And so um, to a much, much, much greater degree, Christ is saying, I have food that you don't know about. My, my food is to, to do the will of, of the Father. And to, to receive sustenance from that. And we've probably all experienced this, I would say, in, in, in one way or, or another in our lives. Right? There's, there are certain things that, that we enjoy that we become so enthralled in that we just lose track of time. Right? I know my son who's not here, like, he can just game for hours and not eat. And I have to tell him, kid, stop. Come eat. Now. Right? We just get so, whether it's a game, uh, you know, a, a, whether it be sports or just a hobby or whatever the case may be, we become so enthralled with that thing that it almost becomes like food to us because we lose track of everything else. It, it, it suspends our, our consciousness. And so the point I'm trying to make is, church, ought that not be more than anything else? The Word of God or sharing the word of God with another, dwelling on the word for our, ourselves within our own heart, feasting upon it for ourselves, or sharing it with someone else, entering into conversation, walking through spiritual truths with people, even if they're, they're asking questions or, or even uh, entering into a, a charitable debate with someone, trying to talk about this point or the other within faith. We can go for hours like this and not think anything of it. Doing the will of, of the Father, I can promise you, is in, in, in regards to, to this text last week and this week, doing the will of the Father is, is the only food that's going to sustain us. Right? When, when we enter into conversation with other people, when, when we have a desire to share our faith with others, knowing that doing the will, the, the, the will of the Father is the only thing that will sustain us. It can't be about us just checking a box or feeling good about ourselves as if that's our spiritual duty that we are, are supposed to be about. It is, but if we're only doing it out of, out of almost a sense of, of works-based righteousness, then it's, it's not going to last. It's not going to sustain you. It must be about the Father's will. And this is what Christ says, to accomplish his work. This has to be the overarching priority in everything in our life. So hear me, church. Your, your love and your devotion and your knowledge of Christ, your faithfulness to Christ, your application of God's word in your life, I'm telling you, unabashedly, without apology, it's to be the most important thing in your life. It's more important than your spouse. It's more important than your kids or your job or your home or your possessions or your hobbies or anything else. It's more important than all of that. And that's what Christ is telling the disciples. I have food that you don't know about that sustains me, that gives me life, that keeps me going. And it is to do the will of the Father. Well, the will of the Father overarches everything. There isn't anything that should happen outside of the will of the Father. And that's, as people of Christ, that we ought to be about. We aren't saved to find comfort. We aren't saved to get out of hell. We aren't saved because God just so desperately needed our affection. We're saved for God's glory. We are saved entirely for the glory of God. To honor 
and magnify his great name. So, very simply, church, this, it's, understand something. I've, you've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again. The Christian faith, the walk, gathering like this, it's not about us. And the sooner we realize that, the better off we're going to be. The better we'll be able to walk in faithfulness, the better we'll be able to share our faith with that person that we've known for years, that we're too scared or too, too shy too afraid to share our faith with, that we know they're going to hell, but we, and, and we have the answer, but we can't say it because this reason or the other. Church, it's not about us. And the sooner we realize that, the better things are. And we, when we make it about us, then we immediately become less effective at accomplishing the Lord's will. Immediately. While preaching over this very same passage, one of my very favorite preachers in the world, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he's a pastor in London, a Baptist pastor in London. He, he said this to his congregation regarding this passage of scripture. He said, some of you good people who do nothing except go to public meetings and Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of, of spiritual dissipation would be a good deal better Christian if you would look after the poor and needy around you. If you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to the dying man, you would find your spiritual health mightily restored. For very much of the sickness of Christians comes through their having nothing to do. All feeding and no working makes men spiritually gloomy. Be idle careless, with nothing to live for, nothing to care for, no sinner to pray for, no backslider to lead back to the cross, no trembler to encourage, no little child to tell of a savior, no gray-headed man to enlighten with the things of God, no object, in fact, to live for. And who wonders if you begin to groan and to murmur and to look within until you are ready to die of despair. Church, there is nothing more dear to Christ than to accomplish the will of the Father. And we know the, the, the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, he says, all authority, all, all power and authority has been given to me. Therefore, go, preach the gospel, Make disciples of many nations, baptizing them in my name. And by extension, church, that's the same command that's given to us. Because we follow after Christ. He is our rabbi. He is our savior. We are like him. To be Christian means to be little Christs. We're to do what he told us to do. And so our same mission, our same work to do, is to carry out that great commission, to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to baptize, to teach and preach and proclaim the word of God. We are to, to, to seek to accomplish the work of the Father. And he shows how ready it is to be carried out. He asks do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Now, there's a little bit of confusion around this text. I'm not going to spend very much time with it, but some commentators say this while others disagree. And I'm not even going to get into like all of the contextual reasons as to why they disagree. But, but I think I'll just pose it this way. To say, Jesus to say to the disciples, are there not yet four months and then comes the harvest? Right? He's, he's essentially saying that the crop is ready to gather. Right? Maybe he's saying that it's in, from the, the moment that this interaction with the disciples is taking place is literally four months away from the time of harvest, which would have put it around December or January. That's not the point, though. The, the point, I mean, if, if it's true, it's certainly uh, just a, another masterful way of Jesus uh, figuring out how, how to, to, to communicate to people. But the point was that the spiritual harvest was ripe and ready for the picking. 
The spiritual crop was, was ready to be gathered in. The immediate reference here m- most likely would have been the, the approaching Samaritans. They're coming out from the town to Jesus. And I don't know this for certain, but I have to imagine that as Jesus is speaking with the disciples and he's, he looks out and he can see the townspeople coming and he says, behold, the harvest is ripe. It is ready. It is ready to be, to be gathered. Regardless of the meaning behind Jesus saying in four months is the harvest, the message remains the same. And it isn't, I don't think it's lost on the disciples. It's not lost on those who hear him. He's saying that the harvest is now. And there's a sense of urgency. Gather the harvest now. Because church, understand, in that day and time, in that culture, the harvest was incredibly important. It was all hands on deck. There was a sense of urgency. Gather in the harvest. Gather in the crops. Because their life literally depended upon it. And so for Jesus to say the harvest is ready, that means it's go time. It's let's get to work. Because if, if we don't gather it now, then it'll be lost or, or in a literal harvest, it, I mean, it, it will go to waste. So there's an urgency. And then Jesus calls upon a passage in Amos. Amos 9.13 says the days are coming when the, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and when the treader of grapes, the one who plants. So the one who treads out the wine, the, the one who, who gathers in the crop is, is overtaken by the workers. It represents the the abundance of the new age that comes through Christ. If you can remember several weeks ago, the wedding at Cana, the abundant wine was a symbol of abundant life and joy and celebration. The new kingdom is being ushered in through Christ. A new covenant is being established through Christ. And this reference back to the the passage in Amos, Jesus is saying it, it, it represents the abundance of the new age that's coming through Christ, where sowers and reapers come together to rejoice in seeing sinners come to salvation. So, so here, here's what's happening. This is, um, I'll, I'll, I'll use a word for a moment, and then if, if and I don't want to lose you with it, but this is, this is very much um, an eschatological reality that Jesus is pointing to. That means end times. This is, Jesus is pointing to the end. And he's saying that the, the harvest is plentiful. It's ready to be gathered. And it doesn't matter anymore if you're the one who plants or you're the one who plows or you're the one who gathers. All will be able to rejoice in this together in seeing sinners come find salvation. So some will sow, others will reap, but we rejoice together in the community of Christ. And, and that message is so true for us today, church. That we all have our specific jobs that, 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 or functions, rather. Our, our giftings that we, that we have that serve the body of Christ. It doesn't exclude us from preaching the gospel to others, but we know that we all have these different functions and, and giftings that we can use to, to serve the body. Paul talks about in his epistles that, that the church being the body of Christ is made up of many parts, and that's us. Eyes and hands and feet and a mouth. They all have different functions, but they're all a part of the same body. But here's the point. We get to rejoice together as a community, seeing sinners come to the grace of God. And so we should realize and rejoice in, in knowing that the success in reaping, it usually depends on the work of those who have come before us. Jesus sent his disciples to reap what they didn't work for. They didn't plant it. They didn't work for it. 
Jesus had this conversation with the Samaritan woman. She goes back into town and she tells them about what this, this man has done, what he has said. And the people come. And, and the text tells us that some of them believe just on her testimony. Now, I don't know to what extent, but then we know Jesus stays for two more days and he preaches. And many more believe because of what he said. And they profess that he is the savior of the world. And, and I'm hopping around in the timeline here, but, but hopefully you're, you're still tracking with me that, that Jesus is saying to the disciples as the people are coming out to the well, he's saying the harvest is ripe and ready for the picking. You haven't done anything, but just go and gather it. But they have to go and they have to speak. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe Tony might have even referenced this passage a couple of weeks ago, that one will plant and another will water, but it's God who makes it grow. Right? Paul goes on to say, whether it's Paul or Apollos, or, you know, it's, it's, it's all Christ. So understand, again, even, even in this responsibility that's been given to us as Christians to go and preach and proclaim, to gather the harvest, it still isn't even about us. It's about Christ. It's always been about Christ. It will always be about Christ. We just go and we speak, church. We, we serve Christ in faithfulness by, by being his ambassador and speaking on his behalf. We, so that's why it's so important that we know the truth and we go with the truth, right? Because we're speaking on behalf of the king. But even in that, just know that, and, and this should be a bit of a relief for you. It isn't about how well you share the gospel with someone. I promise you, no one is going to come to faith because you presented the gospel well. They're going to come to faith because the Holy Spirit convicted them of their sin and showed them their need of a savior. So it doesn't matter if you do the four spiritual laws or Romans road or your own personal testimony. You don't have to have it rehearsed and, and polished up real nice and neat. It doesn't matter. Just go and speak and God will do the rest. It is God who causes it to grow. So the disciples were about to reap in the salvation of the Samaritans. And John the, the evangelist, the, the author of this letter, he tells us that, as I already stated, many believed in the testimony of the woman. And they were coming out to see the Messiah. They invite him to stay. He stays for two days and he teaches and he preaches. And as a result, many more believed. They profess him to be the savior of the world. Not because of this woman's words any longer, but because of Jesus' words. And so, church, I encourage you as well just to be like the Samaritan woman, right? To, to be so enamored with your Savior, to know what he has done for you. Right? I stressed the point last week, I believe it was, to, to, to understand the weight of glory and grace that we have been, we've been recipients of, when, when truthfully, church, understand, we, we deserve hell, every single last one of us. We are, we are born into sin. We inherit it from our father, Adam. And the scriptures tell us that the wages of sin is death. And, and no man can make a payment a, a propitiation for his sin. It must be Christ. And so this, this does that not make more sense? The song that we sing, Amazing Grace, it's amazing. It's otherworldly. So be so, so enamored, so in love with your Savior so in love with his word, which we know is his word. John 1, 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, and the word was flesh. That's Christ. 
And, and the word in, in the Greek that is, is used for the word of God, the scriptures being breathed out by is theonostas. It's, it's the very breath of God. And, and John is saying, that's Jesus in the flesh. If you've experienced that, then church, drop, drop your, your water jar and just go. Go tell someone. I hope you can think of someone right now that, that you need to go and you need to share the gospel of Christ with. I know that I do. As I said, these Samaritans were the first to call Christ the Savior of the world. And it came as a result of this sense of urgency that I think Jesus was sharing. That the gathering of harvest, which is the carrying out of the Father's will, because of this urgency, we, we see this take place, this great and glorious gift take place within the Samaritans. The age of the harvest is now. And hear me, the age of the harvest is still now. We're still in it. We are still in the church age, the, the last days. So these words that Jesus shares with his disciples, he shares with us. The age of the harvest is now, and if we are following Christ, then hear me, we must, not we should, we absolutely must have this same sense of urgency. But we don't. Why? Well, because our schedules are full because we glorify busy in this country as it's good. And hear me, I'm not saying be complacent and be lazy. Don't be slothful, work mightily under the Lord. But, but we have so filled up our schedules, right? And, and I could list off a dozen things right now, right? That, that might step on toes because you're like, oh, that's, that's me, I do that one. But I don't need to do that. You, you already know what it is. I know what it is. We don't have that sense of urgency because life is easy. And if I'm honest, church, oftentimes when life is easy, we really don't need Jesus that much. Now, I'm not saying that's true, but isn't that how we feel? We just don't need him that much. And so we don't have a sense of urgency about sharing about him with anyone. So I'm calling us, all of us, myself included, out to have a sense of urgency for the gospel of Christ. The other lesson that we learn from Jesus is his priority in all of this. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So serving God is to be our very food. We are to be the kind of people that we get, we get so in, involved in ministry with others that we, we don't think about our own needs. I'm not saying that that's absolutely true all of the time. We don't forsake every need that we have, no. But if someone that you know doesn't know Christ or, or perhaps are even wayward and have, have drifted away from the church and they reach out to you and you can't make the time for that because it isn't a priority and you, it, you don't feel like it's urgent, Then, then what are we even doing? What does the Christian faith even mean if, 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 if we can't do the very thing that we see Jesus talking about and doing in this text with his disciples? We ought to be so involved in, in the ministry to others, not for the sake of doing ministry, but because it's about God. It's about his glory. And it's about fulfilling the Great Commission and going and speaking and sharing the good news. I can promise you, church, it, it, is, it is something else to be people who partake 
of food that the world knows nothing about. To be able to be sustained by the, the Spirit of God as you enter into this type of ministry that, that Christ is calling you to. And here's the, here's the beautiful thing. Just imagine with me for just one second, all of you, you're, you're weak, what that looks like, where you are, the people that you interact with. Every single one of you has your own opportunity and to, to be able to share with people that, that no one else in this room can do. You're given a captive audience, most likely. You're given the opportunity to speak. You're, you're given the chance to build relationships and to invest in that person's life. And so what a great thing that you can do that I can't do. So be a people who partake in the food that the world knows nothing about. Be followers of Christ who give the highest priority and urgency to his will and his work. I think that's, that's what we're seeing in this text. And then lastly, understand that the, the, the harvest that Jesus has for you, it might be where you least expect it. It might be in a person that you least expect. And it might come in a time that you least expect. These disciples did not expect to see Jesus talking with the woman at the well. They did not anticipate gathering the harvest amongst the Samaritan townspeople who came out to see Jesus. And the same is, is likely going to be true for you and, and for me. That there is a harvest that Christ has for you. And you should be ready, and it should be urgent, and it should take priority over many other things in your life. And you might come to a, a place where you think that, that you're just passing through, right? Like, like we would assume Jesus would be just passing through Samaria. It might even be like the disciples. It might be a place that you don't really want to be. But I would encourage you to, to lift up your eyes and to see with spiritual eyes that this might be the very place where God has you, where he's been sowing seeds of the gospel that you didn't work, you didn't till the ground, you didn't plant the seed, you didn't water it, but now he's asking you to gather the harvest. To reap what you didn't sow. So, two challenges, and, and then I'm going to read you um, something from uh, a book called Piercing Heaven, which is another collection of, of Puritan prayers that I have. Um, two, two challenges, I think, is one, um, you have to be people who love God and his word, or you, you will fail in everything that I've just said. You, you won't be able to recognize the harvest. You won't be able to gather it. You won't be able to, to share the word of God because you don't know it. So allow, be, be people of the word. Be disciplined to be in the word so that it can take root in your heart and it can reshape who you are to make us more into the image of Christ. And then the second is to go and to speak, to gather that harvest. I read you this, this prayer titled, O Lord, Draw People to Christ. For those who do not know you yet, Lord, grab onto them now. And do your work. Take them by the heart. Overcome them. And persuade them. Until they say, you have won. You are stronger than I. Lord, did you not make me a fisher of men? I have worked all this time and caught nothing. Have I spent my strength for nothing? 
I will cast my net one more time. Lord Jesus, stand on the shore and show me how and where to spread my net. Give me the words to enclose the souls I seek that they will have no way out. Now, Lord, for a multitude of souls, now for a full portion, Lord God, remember me, I pray, and strengthen me, O God, to your glory. Amen. Church, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray here in just a moment as uh, the, the music, musicians come, and, and then I'm going to be over here to the side. I don't know how this word has, has struck you today. That um, isn't for me to know. That's the work of, of, of the Holy Spirit, and uh, I, I trust him to be faithful in his work. So however this word is spoken to you, just allow that to do work in your heart. Don't be obstinate and fight against it. Allow the, the, the Holy Spirit to just do his work in your heart. And I would just ask you to, to, to go to God in prayer and, and to share with him um, the, the thoughts and, and the response that, that you have towards this. And... Um, and then if you need to, to come and to speak or to pray with me, I'll be over here to the side. I'd be happy to do so with you. So um, I'm going to pray. And then uh, we're going to enter into uh, a, a time of, of singing unto the Lord again. Father in heaven, Lord, uh, God, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm so thankful for how true and lasting it is. I pray that we would be a, a people who, who know and, and profess that, that, that your, word is, um, your word is authoritative to us, uh, that, that we are to live our lives according to what it says, that there's no error contained within its pages, that, that you, have, you have protected your word over thousands of years. So much so that, that we, can, we can believe in faith and confidence that the book that we hold in our hand is true. It is alive and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. So I ask that your word would just come and do its work within our heart to, to, to cut where it needs to and, and to heal other places, Lord. Father, just... Uh, Help us to be a, a, a people who are surrendered to you and, and desire for you to come now and to, to move and to work amongst us, Lord. Um, Lord, knowing that you're always with us, you're always uh, at, at work in our lives, but just help us to be mindful of that now in this moment. I'm thankful for Christ and his engagement, his conversation with the Samaritan woman and the lessons that came from that for the disciples and the, the, the Samaritan townspeople who, who responded in faith. God, let that be, uh, our lives be a, a reflection of that, that we would be about the very same work. Lord, and in your name I ask this. Amen.